So, how's all this work? How's all this work? That's the question, right? We're working our way through the New Testament book of Titus, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege as he was setting things in order in a culture on the island of Crete 2,000 years ago. And one of the things that's crucial to understand, both in the specific context of the book of Titus, but also in the broader context of what we call following Jesus, what we call the gospel, is that good works matter. The evidence of faith in our lives, that evidence is to be there and it's to make a difference. We see this all the way through Titus. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, notice with me in Titus chapter 1, in verse 16, describing the false teachers that Titus would inevitably deal with, it says that they are unfit for any good work. Now, if that were the only reference to good works in Titus, you might think I'm overstating the case. But look with me in chapter 2. Look down in verse 14. This was our text last week. You notice it says that God's desire, what He's doing, what He is doing through Jesus Christ is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And in case Titus didn't get the message, look in chapter 3, verse 1. It says that these people that Titus is to be teaching are to be ready for every good work. Go down a few verses later, our text this morning, in verse number 8, we find that Titus is responsible to teach the people, and the people that Titus is teaching are responsible to teach their people to be careful in the middle of of the verse, verse 8, to be careful to devote themselves to good works. And that's not all. We come to our text next week in verse 14, and Titus concludes by saying, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So what does this look like? How does it work? Do we earn God's favor by our efforts, our good works, the criteria through which we will get to heaven? Do we find forgiveness if we've been good enough and faithful enough and diligent enough? Because let's face it, that's the essential message of nearly every religion on the face of the earth. But if that's not the case, how do we understand good works? How do we understand our responsibility? For Titus, he was teaching and responsible to impart this information in Cretan and Roman culture. For us, we're responsible to understand it and apply it in Californian Western culture. And for everyone, whether it's that culture 2,000 years ago or the culture today, all of us are sinful. In the way we are born, we are guilty before God. In our birth and then in our choices, we are We produce the problems that we struggle with. And so the gospel, which is receiving and and then living out this new kind of life, the gospel represents a seismic shift. It represents not just an adjustment in the way we live, but there's something radically different. It's a move away from the prevailing culture, and it's a transformation within. That's what the gospel does. But again, how does all that work? How does it happen? What's it look like? Well, we're going to read. And as we read in Titus chapter 3, what we're going to see is the goodness of God that drenches this text. God's extravagance in His kindness In fact, though the specific word is not used, it's really God's love that we find in Titus 3. So let's look at it together. Titus 3, we'll begin in verse 3, picking up from last week, and read down to verse 8. And as I read, I would remind you this is God's word for all of us today. Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, notice our Savior, this is a confession 
God is not just the God out there. He is our God and He is our Savior. God our Savior, when His goodness and loving kindness appeared, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This contrast between verse 3, do you see it? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, various passions. And think about the words that describe God in this text. Words like goodness and loving kindness and mercy and grace. That's the contrast. But how does that change happen? How do we get this radical change from being the verse 3 kind of people that all of us were in our sin even those of, those of us who came to faith early, we recognize that in our sinfulness, we are there in potential. We would have fully fleshed out that kind of lifestyle sooner or later. But the amazing thing is that something has changed. How did it happen? And what's it to look like moving forward? Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. Titus 3 reorients us regarding who we are who we will be eternally, and who we are to be now each and every day. And all of this is rooted in the wonderful works of God. That's what we're going to find this morning. We're going to talk about the why and how of your salvation and how God's people are saved, how His special possession people called saved people in this text, how we are to live. And there's really four categories that I want to walk through with you, and they kind of flow in and out through the text, so let me show them to you. The first one is this, our salvation, I want you to see the wonders of our salvation's divine basis. The basis of our salvation is divine. The basis of our salvation is in God. And you see that, if you're still here in Titus, you'll see it in verse 4. Let's look at it once again. It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Now, let me just stop first of all and say that there is an accusation against God. It has been around since the Garden of Eden. It is around in the broader culture, and it sometimes shows up in our sinfulness and in our flesh that God is somehow stingy, that God is somehow overly narrow, that God is miserly in His gifts and His goodness. But you can't understand the God of creation that way. In fact, to profess that kind of God is a sense of blasphemy because God is extravagant in His love. He's extravagant in His mercy. He's extravagant in His grace. It says in verse 4, this was the goodness of God and it was the loving kindness of God. And when that loving kindness and goodness appeared, the goodness of God our Savior, He saved us, verse 5. Now you remember, if you weren't here last week, let me just very quickly remind you, when it says that the kindness of God appeared, what we're talking about is the chain of the working of God all the way through history. The, the precise way that the the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared was when Jesus came into the world. So in a sense, this is a Christmas text. Help me remember, I might re-preach this sermon on Christmas, all right? Because that's what happens when the incarnation comes, and the life, and then the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's in verse chapter 2, it talks about the grace of God appearing, remember? But there's another sense in which the salvation of God, this kindness and this loving kindness and goodness of God appears and He saves us in our lives at the moment that we hear the gospel. Wherever that was, for me it was as a young child. For some of you it was perhaps only recently. Your eyes were enlightened to the glory that the God of heaven is willing to forgive you and save you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And in a sense, that's when 
the kindness of God appeared to you. But there is another sense, remember? There's another sense that way back, way back, in what we call the Old Testament times, even way back in the Garden of Eden, the goodness and kindness of God appeared when God promised that even though now there was disaster because of disobedience, God would provide grace. And there's even a deeper mystery that I'll just mention. Because what the Bible teaches is that even back before that, in the mystery of what we call eternity past, God had already set His favor on those He would save. So in a sense, you could say, where did God's goodness and kindness appear? There's a sense in which it appeared before time began. I've told you before, as my mom used to say, it appeared before I was even thought of. But not really, because God set His favor on me before time began. So this is the goodness and the loving kindness of God appearing in His savingness. Look in verse 5. When that appeared, He saved us, watch this, not because of works done by us in righteousness. By the way, in the truest sense, there's never been a work like that in the history of the world. You remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 about our best deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. And so all these works of righteousness that might engender God's favor, they never existed, not in our lives, not in history. But it says that we are not saved by works done by us in righteousness, of which there are none, but we are saved according to His own mercy. Now listen very carefully. What we have here is Paul reminding Titus, and Titus reminding the pastors in Crete, and the pastors of Crete responsible to remind their people, and through the Word of God, all of us to understand that God is the one who saves, not us. He came up with the idea of deliverance. He is the one that initiates. It's not the works of righteousness which we do, but it's according to His mercy that He saves us. The term that Jesus uses, and there'll be hints of this in the next text, the term that Jesus uses is the idea, remember, of being born anew or born from above or more popularly being born again. That's the way Jesus said it. And like a newborn, we have nothing to do with our own spiritual birth. It's all of God. And immediately when we say that, especially for people who have not yet come to faith in Jesus, but Perhaps even sometimes for us, as we still struggle with sinful flesh, there's pushback because this strikes at our pride. We'd rather do things ourselves. We, we all have this kind of sinful desire for glory, at least self-glory, it's sinful. And that's the point of verse 3. We were enslaved. Listen carefully. The logic of this text is, if you look at verse 3, those verse 3 kind of people were never going to be able to self-deliver. They were never going to be able to self-rescue. They had deceived themselves. They were held in bondage. They were enslaved. And they spent their lives in malice, hating one another. That kind of person never delivers themselves. And that's all of us in verse 3. Paul says even he was in verse 3. He says, Titus, you and I were this kind of person. All of us. So salvation has to have a divine basis. And let me just tell you that as glorious as salvation is, and I hope that you'll see it as glorious before we're through, as glorious as it is, we should never think of ourselves as we were pretty decent people, because I think we fall into that trap. I wasn't a drug addict or an alcoholic or an adulterer when I was saved. For one thing, I was only seven. That's one reason, perhaps. In fact, that might be the only reason I wasn't. But sometimes we think of it this way. Well, you know, it's a real miracle when God saves some homeless guy or God saves some politician. (laughs) That's a miracle of God's grace. But after all, we're pretty decent people. God God didn't have to stoop so far to save me, right? And that's deathly thinking to the gospel. It's as though we were going to have a contest at our church picnic here in a few weeks, and we announced that we were going to do a broad jump. And so I'm out practicing my broad jump, and 
Tom Garwood is out practicing his broad jump, and Don McLean is out practicing his, his broad jump. And, but we all know that, that we're all going to lose to either Dave or to Jack Brewer. We, we recognize that they're the ones that are going to win. But you see, the problem with it, salvation is it's not, that, it's not that we're doing a broad jump competing against somebody around us. It's like doing a broad jump across the Grand Canyon. Because we try to broad jump across the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter who it is, they're going to end up at the bottom. We're all there together. And we think of salvation in comparative terms sometimes, as though God is grading on the curve, when what the Bible teaches is that we were all lost and undone and unworthy. That's the reason God had to take the initiative to save, and this is the beauty of grace. And the grace, the message of grace is not work and win it, but the message of grace is receive and worship Now, the test of all of this, if you think about this issue, the test of all of it is the question of, I can be accepted into heaven because blank. I I hope to be accepted into heaven because why? Because you did your best? Because you're better than the other guy? Because you always had the best of motives? All of those reasons are a pathway to hell. What the Bible teaches, we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but only by God's mercy. And you see why this never, when you properly understand the gospel, it should never produce pride. It drives us to humility. It drives us to gratitude. It drives us to worship because we haven't accomplished it It's the grace of God in His mercy that initiated salvation and brought salvation, as we'll see in a moment. It worked salvation in our hearts. It was the work of God. This is the wonder of salvation's divine basis. Now, this morning, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, keep your place here in Titus, but also turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to circle back and forth between Titus 3 and Romans 8 for the rest of the message. I just found it interesting how often Romans 8 showed up in my preparation this week. So let me give you some parallel passages from Romans 8 that reinforce, first of all, this reality of the divine basis of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, look with me beginning in verse 31. And watch for the divine basis of what God has done. The truth is we could read the entire chapter and we'd see that truth. But in Romans 8 verse 31, follow along with me. The 8th chapter of Romans, the 31st verse. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Do you see the initiative, the basis? It was what God did. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It is the work of God in our salvation, and that is a wonder. It is part of the wonderful works of God that you didn't save yourself, you could not have saved yourself. But if you are delivered, if you are saved, if you are forgiven, if you have been made right with God, it is because of God's mysterious, wondrous, extravagant, overflowing grace. And to Him, therefore, goes the glory. The wonders of salvation's divine basis. Secondly, I want you to see back in Titus 3 the wonders of our salvation's miraculous means. It was miraculous that we are saved. It wasn't just a commonplace thing. It wasn't natural. It wasn't normal. It was miraculous. The means by which we are saved, the means by which God delivers us, those means are miraculous means. Pick it up with me in verse 5 of Titus 3. And you'll see what I mean. God saved us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Here's how He saved us. 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now let me unpack those words for you just briefly. Regeneration is not mere improvement. Regeneration is not a makeover. Regeneration, it's a term that's used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used by Jesus, and Jesus uses it to talk about how he's going to recreate creation, the cosmic regeneration and renewal of creation. And that kind of drastic remaking, that kind of recreation, is what we each need in our sinfulness. And it requires a miracle. It requires the terminology in Ezekiel chapter 36 is our hard hearts are removed. It's heart surgery. Our hard hearts are removed. The heart of stone and a heart of flesh is put in. That's what God will do for His people Israel in the end times, according to Ezekiel 36. It's what He does in the gospel for all of us. It's a regeneration. And then the word there, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is not a renewal that's just like new in time. It's a renewal that's new in nature. It's something that it wasn't before. God makes us something we've never been before, and that's the stuff of miracle. And that's what the Bible teaches happens when a sinner comes to believe in Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. That the Holy Spirit does this miraculous work in his heart, giving him a new heart, a regenerated heart, and renewing him in the Holy Spirit. The great church father, John Chrysostom, said this, Our God has not repaired us. He has made us new. It's not a repair job. It's a recreation, and that's a miracle. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. Listen to this. He says, But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, He saved us from all that. Verse 3. It was all His doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. That's a good way to put it. This is the miracle of God's redeeming, regenerating, renewing work that happens when a sinner comes to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's important to note, this miraculous work is done through the Holy Spirit. There's, there are grammatical issues and there's all kinds of debates about the washing is then qualified by regeneration or renewal or, or whether it's washing or regeneration and then renewal by the Holy Spirit. But one way or another, it is a work of God. The Holy Spirit is the one that accomplishes this in our lives. Now, I need to comment about this washing in verse 5 because it reminds us of baptism, the washing of water. And Baptism is a core rite and ritual of the Christian faith. But the whole point of this verse is that everything is internal. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone baptized, but they, they don't come out of the water looking much different other than they're wet everywhere, right? Like it's not a renewal of their external being. The water is not magical. It is a demonstration outwardly of what has happened inwardly. And the inward washing is the work of our cleansing from sin. Back in chapter 2, we read about being purified. It's a cleansing from sin, and it's a renewal in the likeness of God. And the baptism that we undertake, the public profession, is this acknowledgement, this is what has happened to me inside. I have been washed by the Spirit. I've been made new. This is one of the reasons the rite of baptism is important, because it's a means that we are given under the new covenant to give verbal and visible expression to what has happened internally. So when Paul uses the term, he doesn't use the term baptism here, but he uses washing. And inevitably, stay with me for a moment, he would have thought of baptism, and Titus would have thought of baptism, and all their readers would have thought of baptism. But not because the baptism is what causes the regeneration, but because in the early church, everyone who experienced that kind of regeneration, they were baptized. The great problem we have is over the history of 2,000 years, we have separated the confession of baptism too often with our regeneration, and over the course of 2,000 years, 
Many church systems taught that it was that external act that caused the regeneration. And this causes great confusion. But you don't have to be afraid of some thought of baptism here because it's not that the rite of baptism accomplishes the work of God. It's that the rite of baptism is our opportunity to express and display the work of God which has already happened in our hearts. The miraculous working of God. All of that to say, if you haven't been baptized, you need to be. And as soon as I say that, there are a handful of you, perhaps, who think, well, he's just saying that because he's a Baptist. No, I'm saying that because that reflection of the responsibility of baptism, which is often characterized in Baptist churches, that reflection is a reflection of the New Testament. The New Testament knows nothing of a follower of Jesus that hasn't then taken the step of professing his following of Jesus, his regeneration, his renewal through water baptism. So we encourage you to be baptized. Let's go back to Romans 8 for a moment. And let me show you how Romans 8 describes the miraculous, the miraculous means of our salvation. Romans chapter 8. Pick it up in verse number 8 of Romans 8. And notice what Paul says here. He says, those who are in the flesh, in other words, who haven't been redeemed, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Stop for a moment. You see the miracle of that? For people who are Jesus followers, God's Spirit dwells in them. That's miraculous in and of itself. I can't explain that to you. It's not a natural means. It has no natural explanation. But this is what the Word says, that if you are in faith, if you're no longer in the flesh, but to use a different phrase, if you are in Christ as opposed to being in Adam, if you are now in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And then it says, the middle of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him, see the miracle here? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, though through His Spirit who dwells in you. You see the promise from beginning to end. Miracle, I should say say, from beginning to end, our salvation is miraculous. I beg you, if you're looking for the solution to life and you're determined to find it only through natural means, you're already at a dead end. The ultimate answer to living has to be miraculous. And this is exactly what the Bible says God has done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are all wonders. I'll grant also they're mysteries. And we're going to talk next about a great mystery. But these are wonders of our salvation's divine basis and also our salvation's miraculous means. Third, I want to show you the wonder of our salvation's triune author. It's important for us to spend some time thinking about this. The fact that God is Trinity, the fact that God is triune, that there is one God, and yet there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I hope some of you have already noticed it, but let me point it out to you, and let me encourage you as you read other places in the New Testament to watch for this kind of evidence. Because let's go back to verse 4, and let me show you the presence of the triune God here. <clears throat> in verse 4, we read this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so there's God the Father. Generally speaking, when the New Testament refers to God without any other qualifier, without an identification as either Son or Spirit, generally it's a reference to God the Father. So here you have God our Savior, God the Father. Look in verse 5, He saved us, skip down, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Father, you have God the Holy Spirit, and then look at verse 6, whom, that is the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through, here's how it happened, Jesus Christ, 
And notice Jesus Christ is called also, what? Our Savior. So you have God the Father, you have God the Son, Jesus Christ our Savior, and you have God the Holy Spirit. Notice here, both God the Father and Christ are called our Savior. They are not saviors because they are not multiple. They are not a duality. This is not two individuals. This is one God, yet mysteriously, infinitely, He exists in three persons. In the, Holy, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is often called the Spirit of Yahweh or the Spirit of the Lord. At Jesus' baptism, you remember the sight, the scene when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water? And there is Jesus in his incarnate physical form, but there's a voice from heaven. Remember what the voice says? This is my beloved Son, so this is God the Father who speaks from heaven. But at the very same time, you know what you also have? You remember? There's the Holy Spirit who descends in the form of a dove. So you have the appearance of the Trinity itself. The one God, mysterious, you say, well, I don't really understand that. Good, then you're getting it. If you don't understand it, you're getting it. But you have the the Spirit in the form of a dove. You have the voice of the Father from heaven. And you also have Jesus in His incarnate form. You have the Trinity there. And the other thing I would mention, there are many other evidences of the Trinity in the Bible, but... Though Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, alone is worthy of worship, Jesus in the book of Revelation is worshipped all the way through. He is exalted as God. God is Trinity. God is triune. And without specifically intending to teach the Trinity, Paul acknowledges the truth of the triune God in these words. And it's important. It's important because it clearly explicates and lays out the mysterious and in and of itself ununderstandable mystery that God is three in one. Now there's some cautions in all of this. The reason I bring it up this morning. The first caution is language always fails us here. Even in the way I speak these words, I'm always a bit reticent to try to talk or explain the, talk about or explain the Trinity because the language just is beyond our comprehension. We have to always be careful that we don't talk about God as though He is divided into three different people. We have to be careful that we don't talk about God as though there are three gods, which is called tritheism, and it's a heresy. But we also can never ignore what is now revealed about the mysterious and infinite nature of God being three in one. And the way, one of the ways that we fall into a trap, I think we're guilty of this perhaps here at Calvary, is sometimes we talk about the cross and we talk about the plan of redemption as though somehow Jesus and the Father were on different sides of that issue. That the Father had one agenda and then Jesus had a different agenda and then the Holy Spirit just comes along after and cleans everything up. And we would never use that language, but this is the way sometimes we talk about it. As though the Father was intent on damning us, but Jesus said, no, 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 let me go to the cross and save them, as though there's a competition. But this is not in any way what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a mysterious, infinite oneness of the plan of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, from eternity past to bring about redemption. And so there's a cooperation and there is a sense in which what the Father does, the Son does. And what the Son does, the Father does. And what the Father and Son do, the Holy Spirit does. And yet it is one God. And so let's take care with our language that we don't set up some kind of competition or some kind of conflict between the one nature of our eternal, glorious, infinite, triune God. It's important for us to keep that straight. Our salvation is the one work of the triune God from first to last. You say, well, you don't think the Trinity's in Romans 8, do you? Look at it. Go back to Romans 8. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. See if we can find the Trinity here. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 is a glorious promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the Son. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there you have 
the Spirit, and you have the Son. Look in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So you have God the Father, and God the Spirit, and God the Son. By sending, verse 3, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8 also reveals the work of the Trinity. The one work of the Trinity understood through the working of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Our salvation has a triune author. And then at the end of our text, back in Titus 1, verses 7 and 8, we find our salvation's splendid fruit. The lemon festival yesterday in Goleta, right? I have for the first time an orange tree in my front yard that I'm experiencing fresh oranges. It's the glory of living in California, right? It's splendid fruit. And that's what we find in this text. Salvation's splendid fruit. Verses 7 and 8 basically are an opportunity for us to say, and let's not miss saying this, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. Verses 7 and 8. He's done three things here. First of all, he's given us a new status. A new status. I think that's a helpful way to understand it. And that new status is the fact that we are justified. You see that in verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we are justified. Now the interesting thing is, by now I hope you figured out that this text in Titus 3 really exalts and explicates and dives into and unpacks the gospel, and yet the cross isn't referred to. There's no message of specifically, there's no reference to the death of Christ. But you understand that both for Paul and for Titus and for these fledgling churches, they understood that all of this is activated through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His grace is represented by His death for us on the cross. And so we have the book of Romans, we have the book of Galatians, we have the teaching of the apostles. We also have all of the Old Testament with all of the imagery of blood sacrifice. This is the way that we are justified, we are made right, that the just God justifies the ungodly. How does He do that? Romans 3. The way that the just God justifies the ungodly is He is willing to accept a substitute. You say, oh, no, 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 that looks unfair. But all the way through the Bible, God has been accepting substitutes. There is a substitution. And of course, that substitution is the perfect life and death of His Son. And therefore, even in this text, back in chapter 2, the implication is there's one who gave himself up for us. The one who offered himself up. Romans 8 said it, that the Father delivered up his Son. This is the way in which we are justified. And so this is what God does. He takes unjustifiable people and he justifies them through faith in His Son who offered His life as a sacrifice for their sin. It's a new status. Verse 7, being justified by His grace. There's also a new identity here. And the new identity is that we have become heirs. You understand the principle of an heir, especially in the ancient world. You're an heir, you're a joint heir. The New Testament uses that term. We are brothers and sisters... It was generally a male issue, the idea of being an heir and receiving an inheritance. But we understand that the freedom of the gospel comes to men and women equally. We are brothers and sisters of the rightful heir, the King of glory, Jesus Christ. And we are therefore now heirs. It's a new identity. It's fully guaranteed now. It is our identity. Verse 7, see it? So that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, if you reflect again back in verse 3, remember that list we read? It was a grim list. These are the people that God has seen pleased through His Son, Jesus Christ, to call His family. Again, the word is not used here, but the point is adoption. We are adopted into His family. The judge who should have damned us Instead, on the basis of Jesus, pronounces us not guilty 
and then does more, adopts us into his own family. And we become heirs along with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this is a new identity. We are new people. We are adopted as heirs by a holy God. And this guarantees our future full reception of that inheritance. A new status, justified, a new identity. We are heirs. And if you want to see this in Romans 8, let's go back there. There's one more thing I want to say about it from Titus 3. But look with me again in Romans 8. This is what is a, a this passage I'm going to read to you is a significant, glorious theological proof that God's salvation never fails never fails. In Romans chapter 8, pick it up in verse 28 with a very familiar verse. Romans 8:28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a great promise, isn't it? I mean, all of us one time or another we've claimed that promise, right? But who's it for? Well, it's clearly for those who love God. He explains who it's for. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, wait a minute. Uh, I feel like I'm called to the ministry. So you think this promise is just for me? What, What does it mean to be called by God? Well, the text explains it. Look at the next verse, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son. You say, well, where'd the called go? We're going to get to it. It's down in verse 30. He's describing who the called are. And you want to know, well, I want to know that all things are going to work together for good. I want to know if I'm called. Okay, Paul says, pause for a moment. I'll tell you who's called. The ones who are called are the ones that God foreknew. Now, can we stop for a minute? If God knows everything, He knew everybody beforehand. The term for no is more than just knowing about. The term term for no is relational. It's connected in concept to the early chapters of Genesis where it talks about that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's a relational. In that case, it's it's, it's the joy of sexual union in marriage. But it has to do with love. It has to do with relationship. And it begins there. Remember how I said that in a sense the gospel begins back in eternity past when God sets his favor on those he will save and then those are the ones who are predestined and then it keeps going. And those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And what was that predestination? It was a predestination to be conformed to the image of his son in order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now pick it up again in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, so he's foreknown us, he predestined us to be like Jesus, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So that's how it connects to verse 28. Wait a minute. The called are those that are predestined to be like Jesus. The ones predestined to be like Jesus are the ones that God foreknew. And that's where the gospel begins in eternity past with God's favor that he sets on those he will save. So he predestines those to be conformed to the image of his son. And then he calls us, and that's our experience of being called by the gospel. But that's not all. Look at it, verse 30. And those whom he called, those he also called, those whom he called, he also justified and justified was in our text this morning. So he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the fruit of God's salvation. And God never loses any fruit. Every morning this time of year, I go outside, and there's oranges on the ground. And they've already gotten infected and, you know, ruined, whatever. I'm not, I don't understand all of this, but they're not edible. I'm losing fruit. We've had problems with people stealing avocados and fruit from our community. God never loses fruit. The splendid fruit of the gospel, this text says that those who are glorified, every one of those who are glorified are the ones he foreknew. 
This is the fruit of the gospel. Do you see how it's God's work? Because I would have messed this up, wouldn't you? If this were up to me, I wouldn't have made it to the end, to that glorification. But in the gospel, the glorious thing about it, the wondrous thing about it, the mysterious, this is the wonderful work of God, is that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those who he predestined, he called, and the ones he called, he justified them, and the ones he justified them, he will glorify them. Splendid fruit. That's our new identity. What's our new identity when we come to faith? I guess you could argue in a sense it's not a new identity, but experientially it is. We realize that we were foreknown and we were predestined and God was kind in calling us and He justified us on the basis of Jesus Christ and our faith and repentance. And then we will one day be glorified. Splendid fruit. It's our identity. So we have a new status. We have a new identity. And then, let me hurry, we have a new mission. Back in Titus 3, and with this we'll close, but look at it. We have a mission. We have a status. We have an identity. But then you pick it up in verse 8, and there's this new challenge, this new commission. We have a mission here and now, every day, right where we are. And we've said it over the last few weeks. The reason God has left us here is to make Him look good. In our lives, in the brokenness of this world, we're to make God look good. And you see that described here in verse 8. Look at it. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful, watch this, may be careful, in other words, they may take care, they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Taking care to devote ourselves to good works. And you say, well, what are the good works? Well, if you want to know the good works, Go back up into chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and read through chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down into chapter 3, because those things are the good works we're called to. Discipling one another in the church, finding faithfulness, finding a, a yieldedness to governing authorities where it's appropriate, to do good in society, to, to not, not be taking revenge on others. All of these are good works. They are what God's people are called to be. It's our mission and by the way, this is excellent and profitable for all people, for people in general. You know, there's this old accusation that those of us who believe in the gospel and we believe that Jesus is going to come back, we don't care about the world because the world's going to end up in hell anyway. And so all we care about is the fact that we're going to get to heaven. If that's what you've been told or if that's what you believe, I encourage you to go study some history this week. For instance, try to figure out where orphan care began in the history of the world. Try to figure out where charity hospitals came from in the history of the world. Look back in history and figure out where rescue missions, who started rescue missions. I, I don't want to be harsh, but I want to promise you, the humanists haven't started any rescue missions in history. The people that started rescue missions and charity hospitals and orphan care, the people that even started the universities, astoundingly, in our nation, were people who had a view of the kingdom of God, who believed that it is excellent and profitable for all people when God's people live the way we're supposed to live. The term that's used today is human flourishing. And I want to encourage you that you don't have to worry a lot about Fox News. You don't have to worry a lot about what's happening in Washington. I think it's appropriate to pay attention to things. You don't have to worry a lot about, about all the, 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 the issues on the geopolitical stage, although we're grieved about war and injustice. But I want to tell you, your primary duty is with your next door neighbor. And this church's primary duty is the west side of Santa Barbara and the city of Santa Barbara. This is where we're to make a difference. That's our mission. It's a new mission. And it's part of salvation's splendid fruit. I'm through. Look at verse 8, and I'll send you out. Verse 8 says this, the beginning of verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying, Titus, you can count on this. Everything he's just said, you can count on it. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Again, one paraphrase says, put your foot down, Titus. Put your foot down about this kind of stuff. 
and it assumes authority. Listen carefully. You recognize that not just this morning, but really every Lord's Day, every Sunday we come together, and you are kind enough to sit here for 35 minutes. Some of you are wondering, when have you ever preached a 35-minute sermon, right? For 35, 40, 45 minutes, or we're headed toward 50 this morning, you, you sit here and listen. The purpose of all of this is to be reset. It's to reorient ourselves. It's after a long week of struggling with our own flesh and, and dealing with the sinner that you married and, and dealing with the people in your family and dealing with the problems at your work and worrying about politics and worrying about your money and worrying about all of those kinds of things and sometimes sinning and sometimes disobeying and other times succeeding and, and having a good week spiritually. But for all of us, we come back together on Sunday morning and it's an opportunity for us to hit reset, to reorient ourselves to reorient ourselves about who we were, verse 3 of Titus 3, to remind ourselves of who we will be as those heirs that one day fully experience the inheritances that God has promised, and as we remember who we are today. This is who we are. We are gospel people. We are forgiven people. We are justified. We are, we are heirs. We are on a mission that's the reason we come together every Sunday, to reorient ourselves to the gospel truths that are our hope and our ground. And what Titus 3 tells us this morning, as Calvary Baptist Church and as Jesus followers in this place, we are called to take care to be who we are. Take care, it says. Be careful, it says in verse 8. We're to take care to live exactly whom God has made us to be. In your life this week, this is your call and my call for us to take care, to be careful, to be who we are. Father, thank you for the fact that we're not left to ourselves. Thank you that we are not left to do this in our own strength. Thank you that we have the glorious truth of what you have done on our behalf through the gospel of Jesus. And help us remember the Holy Spirit is present with us. Your word is a lamp under our feet, a light under our path, that we can learn how to live our true identity. Though we're not in Crete, we are here in California. And we pray that you will strengthen us to live this way. And Father, I would pray today, if there are any who are under the sound of my voice and they still have not yielded themselves to the glorious wonder that you will forgive them through Jesus Christ, I pray that you would grip their heart this morning. I pray that you would not give them rest until they resolve the issue of their soul. And we will give you praise and glory as you redeem those who you will make your own. Thank you, Father, that none of this is dependent upon us, but it is your faithfulness, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.